and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, we go on a virtual tour of a plastic-free cafe from Sky. We realised we needed to have a way that we could both engage um, our employees but also could trial. We trek down the Thames to hear how Tideway is cleaning plastics from the river. So it's really about creating communities of volunteers that understood the river and how we impacted the river. We explore how the University of Leeds is engaging staff and students on its quest to become single-use plastic-free by 2023. One of our key student engagement messages is that by you know, changing their personal behaviour and their consumption of single-use plastic can actually make huge changes um, within industry and within government legislation as well. So that's a real key focus of our engagement for the students. And we talk value chains, life cycle analysis and plastic pledges with Nestle at their Gatwick offices. We cannot ever really create a closed loop unless we all understand our role and we know how to play it. So I think it depends on where you sit in that value chain. Mm. So hello and welcome back to Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. It is episode number 78 and it's our first of 2020. Yes, we've got a brand new decade to sink our teeth into and with 10 years to reach the sustainable development goals and deliver the majority of the emissions reductions required to give us a fair shot at reaching the Paris Agreement, sustainability as a profession has never been more crucial. And we at ED are hoping to tap into this sense of urgency by delivering more bespoke content tailored to helping sustainability professionals raise ambitions and accelerate actions. And this week, the 13th to the 17th of January, has seen us focus on plastics. It's a topic that needs no introduction, so I'm basically just not going to give it one. We all know the issues around plastics um, and how they are seeping into the national environment. Um, and in partnership with Nestle, Edie has run a Plastics Week. It's a week of dedicated interviews, reports, online events and opinion pieces uh, aimed at helping to turn the tide on plastic waste in a way that allows businesses to explore the consequences of moving too quickly or indeed too slowly on plastics. And we at Edie, we understand it's a tricky place for business. Um, consumer demands are, are driving business actions uh, at, at a pace, but at the same time, businesses are fully aware that any changes made today could have unintended consequences in the future, uh, which is a critical consideration, especially in the area of carbon and climate change, which is having its own uh, sense of emergency as well. So as part of Plastics Week, this podcast is going to speak to four different organisations that all have different relationships with plastics to see how they're making progress against public targets to combat the issue. The first half of this episode will feature free interviews with sustainability professionals leading unique action plans on plastics, and the second half is dedicated to a sole in-depth 25-minute interview with Nestle, who are the supporting partners of this podcast and indeed our Plastics Week. Uh, for that, we are going to hear how the company, listed as the third largest plastics polluter behind Coca-Cola and PepsiCo, has taken a scientific and measured approach to transforming uh, its packaging to 100% reusable and recyclable by 2025. We at ED also have a lot of content-driven goodies to share with you, uh, but that can wait, because first up on this first episode of a new decade, 
we actually travel back to 2019, uh, where senior reporter Sarah George caught up with Sky's group head of inspirational business and Sky Ocean Rescue, Fiona Ball, to hear all about the company's newest plastic-free cafe. Right, so we couldn't exactly have a plastic-themed podcast in the um, middle of January without speaking to Sky. Um, Anyone who's even remotely interested in the conversation will know that Sky launched Ocean Rescue around three years ago now, um, predating Blue Planet 2 even. Um, And since then, the campaign's had more than 35 million interactions from the public. It's been supported by government ministers and big businesses alike. Um, And it's obviously headed up by Sky's overarching target to eliminate single-use plastics across its operations by 2020. So it's great to have the head of Ocean Rescue, Fiona Ball, on the call with us today. How are you doing, Fiona? I'm fine, thank you. And thank you very much for inviting us to be part part of this podcast. No, you're more than welcome. And actually, the reason we're on the on the phone today is because I wasn't able to keep your invite of coming to Sky's new um, Ocean Rescue Cafe um, at, at its HQ. And we've covered this on our site and there are some great pictures of it up. So I wanted to ask a bit about sort of why you guys felt that now was the right time to make a cafe and essentially visualise the good work you've been doing in supply chains and with consumer-facing businesses, um, yeah, and bring it in, into the HQ. Yeah, so actually the, the cafe was um, a relaunch um, of our Sky Ocean Rescue Cafe. It was something that very early on in the, um, in, in the campaign, we realised we needed to have a way that we could both engage um, our employees, but also could trial all the different um, um, techniques and um, products that we were going to be to be single-use plastic-free in our operations and cafes were one of the most tricky areas to do both from a finding an alternative uh, but also really taking our employees along the journey with us. So Sky Ocean Rescue Cafe, um, this was its new look and as you said the campaign now is three years old mm-hmm. and, and we wanted to refresh it. You know so much has happened since we launched back in January 2017 um, with with visuals, with kind of video content, um, that we really wanted to get a, a fresh look and and to regalvanise, um, you know, employees into into the, you know the campaign itself. Um, so that's why, um, and it's really really important that we have this cafe because, um, you know, right from the start when we set our um, kind of objectives for Sky Ocean Rescue around our business transformation, our investment in startups and the solutions mm-hmm. for single-use plastic, the work we did with kind of WWF and the campaigning and, and all of the kind of content that we've got to really inspire people. And we realised that we really, the engagement piece was going to be critical um, and, um, you know, we needed to change behaviours, um, you know, inspire kind of our employees in, in the targets to get behind us, find ways that we could really embed it within the organisation. Um, and um, take our employees with us, really. So the cafe is critical. It's a really critical part of that. Mm. No, and it seems like every week we get a new survey in that's about, oh, people want to work for companies that have purpose and engage staff around environmental issues or purchase products and services for them. So what's what's the reaction been so far since that cafe refresh? Oh, it's really, it's really, really positive. I think it's, I mean, it's beautiful. And I think 
it, it really does engage everybody that comes into the sky. You can't actually miss it when you come in. We've got an innovation area, you know, where we can showcase all of the partners that we're working with, with Sky Ocean Ventures as well, which is a really important um, bit for people to, to see, look and feel and look at the products. Um, but it's, it's, it's really visually um, very attractive, you know, and, and, but it has a very starking um, message alongside it as well with the amount of single-use plastics that um, is ending up in our ocean. So it's, we've had some very positive feedback. Um, it's, it's, it's great because you can't miss it as you come in. So as well as our employees, any visitor to, to Sky or Sky News is um, studio in, in Sky Central. Um, we'll get, walk right past it and have their, their coffee um, in a coffee cup rather than a single-use plastic cup. No, it's good to hear about sort of like the products that you're showcasing there as well, because I know you mentioned how much the conversation has come on and how much more sort of visuals and content and science there is around that. But I assume there's also been a lot in, in regards to innovation and products and alternatives that you guys can use and also just more broadly as well. Yeah, we've we've got um, quite a few that are being showcased down there. We've got um, two two really interesting ones, very different ones. Choose Water, which is um, a, a replacement kind of water bottle for single-use plastic, which degrades over over time very very quickly. Um, and also Petit Plea, which is um, a really interesting innovation around um, clothing and um, clothing that grows. Um, with a child, which is a really um, different stance on, on looking at um, materials and stuff. So, but I think we've got about 18 or 19, um, you know, um, new kind of um, inv inv inventions and businesses that we've invested with um, since Sky Ocean Ventures kind of launched back in October 2017. And um, it's great to see, um, you know, them come to fruition. Mm. Great. And then obviously we're talking as Ocean Rescue is coming up to its three year anniversary. And I know you might not be able to tell me everything about what's next for, for it, but can you give a glimpse of, of what what next? The, the big piece is, as you, as you mentioned, is the, the reach that Sky Ocean Rescue has had has been incredible. We've reached over 48 million people through the campaign. Um, we've done seven documentaries. Um, you know, we've, we've got a number of people now taking action around um, single-use plastic, um, you know, including all of the, the, in the early days, all the MPs and MEPs that we kind of engaged in this. What is really key is that we work with partners like our partnership with WWF and also the Premier League in turning that awareness um, of, the, of the problem into real behaviour change and action. Um, so we've got um, two big partnerships with WWF and Premier League um, that we're going to really push at um, making everybody a hero in this, uh, really helping them um, understand the issues, but showing them what they can do, you know, whether that is changing their behaviour finding, uh, you know, stop using kind of single-use plastics, finding the alternatives, or, or like we are doing, you know, using their voice, um, you know, and, um, and requesting uh, either businesses to transform or further policies are put in place. Next year is a really big year um, for both the climate but also ocean health as we run up to um, the COP in Glasgow at the end of the year. Um, and, um, you know, we really want to be able to work with our partners and our customers um, to ensure that UK, the UK is in a real leadership position at that COP. You've sort of stole the words right out of my mouth because the next things I were going to ask about were about um, collaboration and how this fits into the, the bigger sort of climate 
um, picture as well. As you say, we are at something of a moment um, in regards to the changing conversation around climate change. There's a feeling in the UK that this will all culminate um, in COP26, but we've equally got the resources and waste strategy coming out. People still seem to be really concerned um, about plastics as as well. So I wanted to get your thoughts on how you think the bigger conversation is changing around plastics and climate as well. I think um, I I think that there's a, there's a there's a lot of um, concern, but there's a lot of goodwill at the moment that I think we'll see a, a lot of things happening next year, and I'm pretty confident that. With the COP, I think it's I, I think it's great that the COP is actually coming to the UK mm. and Europe with the um, Young People's COP in Italy as well. Um, and I think with with it happening in the UK, you know, there's there's already conversations happening about how the UK and UK businesses can take a leadership position on this. So I'm really confident that we will make sure that across the piece, across the the policy piece when we're looking at climate, when you're looking at waste, when you're looking at um, plastics and ocean health more broadly, that um, things will move and move along in the right direction. We've got a huge opportunity here and I think we will we will take that opportunity. Uh, but you're right, it's got to be across all of the different areas, but I think that's what climate is all about. You can't, you can't um, address one issue without looking at the others. No, that's great to hear. And I think that Sky and broadcasters and other sort of media and cultural institutions are pretty well well placed in this in that you have big operations and supply chains that you can address as well, but then also the messaging and the content that you put out into the world. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, we're, we're, we, you know, our targets were to kind of 2020, and I think we, um, at the start of um, 2020 year, next year, we'll be 97% there in reducing all of our uh, single-use plastics in our products and its supply chain, uh, which is incredible. You know, we, we, you know, we changed all of our product lines and anything that went onto the market, you know, literally at the beginning of last year. And, um, you know, we, we have had only open doors, you know, when we've been talking to our supply chain and other businesses about how we tackle this. I think everybody gets it. Everybody sees it as an opportunity to act now. Um, and to and to change, um, you know, the design of their processes and their products, um, and and I and I think that will will continue. Um, you know, we're we're looking at how we can, um, you know, continue doing that. Not only plastics, but also um, border border issues around climate as well. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. If you're listening and you're hesitant to ask your suppliers or other stakeholders for support. Um, as Fiona says, now is the time to go for it. So thank you so much for all of your inspiration and insight. So a big thank you to Fiona for providing an update to the Sky Ocean Rescue Cafe, which garners more than 275,000 visits a year. And the latest one features no new plastic, no vinyl printing. In fact, the only plastic used uh, in that cafe has been salvaged from the sea. And speaking of salvaging plastics from water sources, this brings us nicely on to our second interview. Tideway's construction of the new super sewer in London is set to bring a plethora of sustainability benefits to the region as it attempts to reconnect Londoners with the River Thames. A part of this includes foreshore cleanups, where volunteers take to the banks of the river to help clean up plastic pollution, amongst others. In 2018-19, the programme collected more than 33,000 plastic bottles. 
And for our next guest, Sarah sits down with Tideway's Community Investment Manager for Corporate Responsibility and Reporting Social Value, Kelly Bradley, to discuss Tideway's partnership with Thames 21 to help clean up the river. And for the next stop on our Mission Possible Plastics Week podcast, I am here in London, right on the River Thames, back somewhere where I have been before, and that is at the Tideway um, HQ, where we hosted one of the events for our ED Sustainability Leaders Club last year. Um, But this year, I'm here for a completely different reason, and I am sat with the company's community investment manager, Kelly Bradley, um, who heads up Tideway's partnership with Thames 21. Um, For those of you who don't know about Thames 21, it is a charity that describes itself as the voice for London's waterways, working to connect volunteers and communities with their rivers and canals across a range of environmental issues. So plastics is obviously a key one that we'll be talking about, um, but also with conservation, um, restoration, um, tackling invasive species and other pollutants. So just a small agenda there, Kelly, <laughs> to be working across. Um, and I was wondering if you could give, just as a starter, how, how the partnership with Thames 21 um, came about, a brief overview of where that came from and how it's evolved since it, since it began. Thames 21 were great friends of Tideway right at the beginning of the project um, through the consultation period. They could really see why we needed to build the tunnel. They could see um, the amount of sewage that was entering our rivers every time it was raining. So they were great friends of ours. And when the project was approved, it was a no-brainer to really kind of sit down with them and understand what they currently do and actually how we could work with them. I mean, Tideway's vision is all about reconnecting uh, London to the River Thames, and it's very rare when you get a charity that has a similar vision as you about reconnecting people to the river. Right. So it was it was a no-brainer to do something with them. Um, so again, working with Thames Twenty One, we were kind of working in the same space. We would both be working on the foreshore. We both want to clean up the river. So um, this is where the Thames River Watch partnership began. And we had four aims of the programme. So it's really about creating communities of volunteers that understood the river and how we impacted the river. It was about increasing our understanding of the types of litter that was found on the foreshore. Because believe it or not, up until that time, no one was, was doing this. No one had an understanding of the types of litter that was, that was being found. And actually, was that getting worse or was it getting better? So as part of this partnership, we really wanted to understand the types of litter that we were finding on the foreshore. And then to move on from that is to, to create the understanding of that litter and to raise awareness. So through media and, and um, yes, yeah, through the most social media, And then last part of that partnership is really about um, driving policy change. So what do you do with all that data we find? Mm -hmm. Um, Once it's in the media, once it's in the public domain, what do we do with it? And we were really wanting to make sure that this is all about change, it's about the impact of that, and to drive um, public policy more more than anything. So that was the aim of the programme, the Thames River Watch programme. we, we came up with and it's also helped our business objectives so from a business point of view if we were capturing this data then we could actually um, see how we have 
reduce the amount of sewage derived litter that's coming out and, and spilling into the river. So we had a real good business benefit to this programme as well. So the first phase of the programme was about setting it up. There was nothing in place to begin with, so we had to set up the litter surveys, the methodology, um, the points of where we were going out onto the foreshore. So that took, that took a bit of time and we um, understood quite quickly actually in terms of litter hotspots along the foreshore you have West, Hammersmith in West which was a litter hotspot so what that means is a lot of floating plastic litter was found on uh, the foreshore there and that's where one of our sites is. Um, you have a floating hotspot in Central, so Battersea mm -hmm. and then the last floating uh, plastic hotspot is in Greenwich and so East so we had a really nice spread actually across East, West and Central London which actually matched our construction sites as well. So that, that, was, that, was, that was pretty clear and that was part of the, the setup. Now the second phase of that programme um, was really kind of understanding where we were with that programme. We started to get data. Was it working? Was it working well? Was it getting what we thought we might need from, from the programme? And I think you, we've got to be honest and say it was partly, and there's some of the things actually wasn't working so well. For example, we had water quality testing. We wanted to understand the um, quality of the water. But actually, in phase two of the programme, um, the Environment Agency started putting probes into the river and was giving that data. So actually, we felt that there wasn't a need for the volunteer to do that um, activity any longer. But what we did start to understand was this was really meaningful for the local communities and that they really wanted to take part. So where I was talking before about the um, floating hotspots, we created community hubs in the east and west and we've just started to develop one in Battersea in the central where we got the local people um, who were volunteering coming down on a regular basis to the river, um, collecting litter, surveying that litter, uh, litter and then that was all helping with, with the campaign. So we called them community hubs. Mm. So we had a really good hub in, um, in West and one in East and we're just starting the third community hub in, in Battersea. So that's working really well. And then we also created another role called the Thames Ambassador role. And that was because when we were out on the foreshore collecting litter, we knew that people were really interested, but because all the volunteers were out on the foreshore, we didn't actually have that much time to talk to the public and tell them what we were doing, right. even though they were really, really interested. So we then created the Thames Ambassador role, which was a communication piece. Um, and I think the second phase of the programme, we introduced a comms function within Thames 21 as well, because we were then starting to understand, actually, a lot of this was generating a lot of interest um, in, in the public. Um, Sadiq Khan, after reading the, our, our reports, um, is now putting 100 water fountains in the City of London because mm -hmm. he understands that this is, this is a problem. Um, and Houses of Parliament have also been talking about the data our volunteers have collected. And it's so we feel that we are kind of driving that policy change, which is, which is brilliant. Oh, it sounds from hearing an overview of this project that it's been mutually beneficial. It's in context, so you're looking at the issues that actually matter and where you could could make a difference. And those are both great aspects. And I wanted to, to get your advice, really, for other people that might be listening and looking to form a partnership 
um, around the plastic or maybe marine protection issue because there's so much noise in this space and so many actors looking to get involved so how do you form a meaningful and impactful partnership based on what you've learned? Yeah so for for me it's really think long term Um, and for for me long term is three years plus into a partnership Um, and you know and be flexible with that partnership and question is it having a results which you wanted it to have and if not you can change it it's absolutely fine Um, think about the charity as a whole and not just the top of volunteering opportunities it will create I know here on Tideway we have um, a corporate responsibility manager as a trustee for 1021 We've had our legal team go to 1021 to offer them advice. We've had our audit team go to 1021 to offer them advice. Um, so don't just think about it as the, what the potential volunteering opportunities are. And really, as I was saying before, that communication piece is key. Um, there's no point doing all this work if you're not actually shouting and talking <laughs> about it. So if you're thinking about a partnership, think about that communication piece as well because with all charities they are very limited with resource um, and that communication piece is key so make sure you kind of have that conversation with the charity and as you were saying earlier it's um, there are lots of charities doing this um, amount of um, kind of activity um, around plastic which is which is brilliant so you don't really have to think about developing something new you could always go into something and enhance whatever is in place already. Mm-hmm. No, it's great advice. It sounds like it's mainly about just being efficient as possible and being more holistic than just, oh, we're going to do some volunteering and tick a box. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I can't... In terms of Tideway, it's, it's not just us promoting it. Our 24 construction site teams, they are absolutely amazing. They, um, we, have, we have a team that have created their own um, greenhouse and... And um, that's made out of 800 plastic bottles. We have, um, they're all just coming up with, with their own initiatives. So we have a team that go plogging, which is jogging and picking up litter for their local community. Um, we have, we recycle PPE. So instead of just getting a new PPE kit when people start the project, we recycle and reuse existing PPE. So I really do feel like our site teams are are kind of not on the bandwagon, but they really truly believe what we're trying to achieve here on Tideway and they're Mm -hmm. living and breathing it too. Great, and that leads nicely on to the other question that I wanted to ask, which is that the partnership with Thames 21 is addressing not only waste generating, generated by Tideway itself, but that which would have come into the river elsewhere and I wanted to build on that by asking a bit for a bit more on what's happening internally on the plastics and waste issue and you mentioned some really great employee-led initiatives oh, there. Absolutely and um, another site team and it's what's really nice about this we're not telling them that they've got to do it they're just they're, they're using their own initiative which is brilliant. We have another site team that go out um, every lunchtime and they just pick up the plastic bottles they find on the foreshore. No one can access this site because it's a construction site um, and so you've got a whole site team going out in their lunch hour collecting the litter which is brilliant. We also developed an events code, so we knew that you have your your basic sustainability kind of measures there, but we wanted to go the extra mile and we we kind of specify in every event which we're um, 
which we're responsible for to have zero plastic or minimum plastic, especially no single-use plastic. Um, every new employee of Tideway gets a reusable water bottle, so it's really kind of hitting home that messaging. We have, um, we've been involved in London Pride, which has been an amazing event to be part of. And we also noted that actually these, this, the Pride happens on a really, really hot day and people are very thirsty. So um, we had each of our staff who was taking part in Pride had a 40 litre backpack of water. So they were able to fill up their own water bottles, but then they were able to fill up the general public's water bottles as well. So it's kind of not just hitting the messaging home in Tideway with Tideway staff, but going out there in, in the public as well, which is, which is brilliant. Um, and also I think as part of our sustainability agenda, we're funded through our green bonds as well. So mm. sustainability for us isn't just a side on view, it's, you know, it's kind of, you know, live, we're leave, living and breathing the, the, um, the, the sustainability values of, of what this is about too. Great. I'm going to end on a shameless plug there because I did actually speak to Darren who heads up sustainability here about the green bonds. So if you are listening and you are on our site, if you go to our search bar and type Tideway Green Bonds, you can find out more about that. Um, but for today, that is all I have time for, I'm afraid. So hopefully head off for a plastic free lunch and coffee. Um, thank you so much for your time, Kelly. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. So there you have it. A great example there of how a business can become part of its community and indeed strengthen those ties by tapping into a zeitgeist such as plastic pollution, which is understandably a visible concern for those who work, live or commute near that river. So throughout Edie's Plastics Week, we've heard from the likes of Sky, Henkel, Canary Wharf Group, Eurostar and of course Nestle across a variety of formats uh, on plastics. And if, and if you weren't aware um, of some of those formats, I encourage you to go to the ED website and, and search for uh, a few bespoke bits of content, which I think will really interest you if plastics is a is a real kind of core issue for you and your business. Uh, the single-use plastics business leadership inspiration sessions uh, is an online event that's available to watch on demand. It features free uh, sessions uh, featuring various experts from businesses uh, across uh, Q&A around policy and, and business. Um, best practice case studies and a 45 minute masterclass on behavior change as well. Um, our inside plastic strategies features continue uh, with the aforementioned Henkel uh, and we have existing features with the likes of uh, Unilever and Coca-Cola European partners. So if you search for inside plastics that will bring up that list uh, and do have a read of them. And the 2020 Roadmap Report for Sustainable Business uh, is a brand new report published by EDI um, and with the assistance of Nestle with a viewpoint and indeed uh, RAP, uh, whose director Peter Maddox provided the foreword. Uh, that's a kind of best practice deep dive into how businesses can phase out single-use plastics in a sustainable way across operations, uh, supply chains and products and services. Uh, the links to all of those are available uh, in the podcast description for the episode for this on the ED website. And while we've been able to talk to those big kind of private companies, public organisations, especially universities, have also realised the need to tackle single-use plastics, especially as young students are far more likely to actively express concerns on the issue than, say, older generations. Uh, although that is a bit of a generalisation in fairness. 
In November 2018, the University of Leeds and Leeds University Union pledged to eliminate all single-use plastic items, which includes coffee cups, disposable cutlery and straws, from their operations by 2023. So for the final segment before we take a quick break in this episode, I sat down with the university's sustainability programme officer, Lucy Stewart, to get an update on some impressive milestones towards that target to date. So up next on this plastic special, we're going to be hearing from a different type of organisation and uncover both the challenges and opportunities that universities face when targeting single-use plastics. In 2018, the University of Leeds pledged to become single-use plastic-free by 2023. The pledge commits catering and office spaces to becoming single-use plastic-free by 2020, with the longer-term goal of lab space and other services by 2023. The university states that this will involve collaboration, research and operational changes to be successful. And joining me on the phone now to discuss this is Lucy Stewart, the Sustainability Programme Officer at the University of Leeds, uh, who's here to explain how the university has managed to eliminate one million pieces of single-use plastics during the first year of the pledge. So Lucy, uh, thank you very much for joining me and congratulations on that milestone uh, so far, it's very impressive. Yeah, thank you. Um, we were sort of re- really, really pleased with the, uh, the the achievement that we made there um, after just twelve months of of activity. So yeah, we were really pleased with that. Great, and I think I think the best place to start this conversation is is with a bit of background context. I mean, obviously, everyone within the sustainability sphere kind of knows about plastics, its issues, and that it's been a key kind of public concern as well since well, I mean, since before you you set the twenty eighteen target. Um, but, but how did, you know, University of Leeds come to a decision that a public target to eliminate or to become plastic, um, single-use plastic-free by 2023 was was a target that needed to be set? Yeah, well, um, sort of, as you said, uh, we, we sort of launched the pledge in November 2018, um, and it was a collaboration between ourselves and Leeds University Union as well. Um, the target was set by our Vice-Chancellor and was one of the first of its kind in the, the HE sector. So we knew that it was a very bold commitment and an extremely ambitious target as well. But we, we are a university and we're a university that aims to inspire its students and its staff and, and that's what we set out to do. Um, so in terms of the, the, the sort of decision, as you said, it was, it was very timely. Um, you know, there was a huge increase in the public awareness of plastic pollution. Um, you know, not just here in the UK, but around the globe. But as such a large institution like ourselves, um, with over over 40,000 students and staff, we became very aware of our plastic footprint. Um, We use huge quantities of single-use plastic across all of our operations. Um, Because we're such a a sort of large and complex institution, these range from catering operations to construction to laboratories. And so, so we were very aware that we were, you know, contributing to this, um, global plastic pollution issue. But we saw ourselves not just as part of the problem there, but actually we saw this as a huge opportunity, a huge opportunity to engage and influence um, behaviour change across all of our stakeholders. And again, being a university, we have a really sort of a large and, and wide-ranging group of stakeholders, including our staff, of which we have um, around 8,000 at the moment in a variety of different operational roles um, and academic roles. We have um, very sort of large uh, supply chains. And again, we've got a huge opportunity because we have um, a lot of buying power as a university as well. So we sort of 
so that we could influence our supply chains um, through there. We also collaborate with a lot of higher education institutions across the country. So again, we saw that as a big opportunity. And with other organizations across Leeds, um, we are what's called a anchor institution within Leeds. Um, so we work, we, you know, we are sort of, um, we are seen to influence the city quite a lot in, in what we do and how we operate. Um, so we saw that as an opportunity. But one of the, one of the biggest stakeholders that we have really, um, and one of the biggest opportunities is actually our students. With, over, with around 38,000 students at the moment, um, we saw this as an incredible opportunity to really influence the next generation. Um, if we can sort of change their behavior um, and also their, their sort of research and their knowledge and their best practice, then the students are going to work, go out and work in industries all over the world. So it becomes second nature to them to introduce these policies and to reduce single-use plastic. So for us, that was a, a key opportunity as well. Great, and um, collaboration seems to be the, the theme that's already been brought up during this conversation. And as, as I mentioned, the, your, your website states that it will involve collaboration, research, and operational changes to be successful. And I want to touch in on that collaboration through the lens of staff engagement and probably students as, as well. A lot of... Um, a lot of our audience are sustainability professionals within organisations and, and that are probably looking at single-use plastics as, as most businesses are. And a key barrier to not just plastics but any kind of aspect of sustainability is always engagement and, and behaviour changes as well. So since you know you rolled out this target, what's, what's the engagement been like um, with both staff and students? Um, yeah, yeah. I sort of, as you've mentioned, yeah, collaboration is a, is a huge strand of our strategy really. Um, and mainly because we, we know that we cannot do this alone. Um, like I said, we sort of need all of those stakeholders on board with us. Um, and certainly, as you've mentioned, the staff and the students. Um, the results, the, the sort of the response from staff and students ha has been mixed. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, there's, there's no hiding that fact. Um, I'd say the students at the moment, they're, they're relatively well engaged. Um, you know, they, they're quite a captive audience at the moment, even though there's a huge variety of different students that we have. They are very engaged and we, you know, we really encourage them to change their personal behaviour change. And one of our key student engagement messages is that by, you know, changing their personal behaviour and their consumption of single-use plastic can actually make huge changes um, within industry and within government legislation as well. So that's a real key focus of our engagement for the students. Another side of our engagement is getting the students involved in the pledge um, and we do this through the research strand uh, which you sort of mentioned earlier as well. Really encouraging students to help us find solutions to the single-use plastic um, and you know they can be involved with research pro projects or dissertations or volunteering whatever course they're in you know it doesn't matter whether they're studying um, healthcare medicine um, degrees or geography or sports science there's a way that they can sort of take single-use plastic research and apply it to their discipline and um, now with staff um, you mentioned there yeah it can it can be quite difficult to get staff on board and um, we have a sort of a one of our key areas i know you did mention the three areas but there we also have a huge focus on communications and engagement because like you said that that really is key to achieving this um, and a key area of that is building the knowledge and capacity of our staff um, so that they understand uh, the problem of single-use plastic how it affects or how it is impacted within their working area but also mainly to empower them 
to make a change within their working practices. Um, you know, we are such such a large and complex institution that you know we can't just sort of you know put a, you know roll out policies and sort of um, you know we can't completely enforce this top down on the staff. And um, what we're really trying to sort of encourage is this sort of ground level activity where staff are looking at their own area of operations, identifying single use plastic, and then finding alternatives that's suitable to them in their stream of work. Because as I've said, um, you know, we've got staff that range from all different operations, from catering, um, you know, to architects uh, that are working on construction sites, or, um, you know, lab technicians um, working in sort of a healthcare research laboratory as well. So yeah, that a really key focus of our engagement piece is to really, to really empower the staff um, to make the changes necessary themselves. Yeah, it sounds like you've kind of tried to make it as as relevant to their day to day jobs as as can be, which is advice I've heard from numerous um, sustainability professionals. Is is yeah, you don't want that top down pressure. You want it to be part of their their everyday um, aspect, which is which is great to hear. And I suppose that's that that communications aspect that you mentioned has been a a big driver of the progress to date. The the one million pieces of plastic have been removed in the first year. Uh, where have the kind of key uh, success areas been uh, in that target? Um, yeah, the the key success areas have been where we've really sort of set up sort of working groups and um, sort of different networks within the sort of of our of our staff body really. And um, so, for example, sort of catering are working very heavily with the procurement team to sort of identify where single-use plastic is being purchased and then understand how it's been used on an operational level and then finally talking to their suppliers as well. So again, this is just sort of an example of how we're sort of setting up these networks of different working groups. And um, for specific examples of the one million pieces, um, yeah, we've got some really great ones. As I said, we were really pleased with the progress um, and it does range from uh, a lot of different elements of the university. Um, just sort of to name a few of the, the big hitters, um, our alumni magazines and prospectuses are now sent out um, in alternatives to single-use plastic. So last year they were using a recycled and sustainably sourced paper envelope, um, but they're currently looking at alternatives to that as well. Um, undoubtedly, uh, we got a, a huge number of successes in catering. Um, this, this includes we have a successful Keep Cup promotions where we sell these at a cost price, so not for profit, and provide a 20p discount for their use. Um, this has saved around um, 80,000 disposable cups. Wow. Uh, catering have also replaced their plastic salad boxes with cardboard variations, um, and they will also be promoting a sort of a, a bring your own box. Um, promotion as well this year. Uh, the Leeds University Union, they've replaced all of their single-use plastic cups in all of their bar venues, of which they've got two bars and three nightclubs. Um, and as you can imagine, students drink quite a lot. Um, so yeah, th this was one of our, a, a really nice achievement here actually in, in, the, un in the union. Um, so they replaced their single-use plastic cups with the sort of hard-wearing reusable plastic types and sort of saving on average around 63,000 cups a year. Um, and I sort of said this was quite a nice example because it was actually the bar staff themselves that identified this as an issue and put a proposal forward to management, including the sort of the financial implications of purchasing a dishwasher and the logistics that it would take. Um, but yeah, and then sort of management 
you know, we're, we're more than happy to, to go forwards with that proposal. So again, that was a, a good example of how sort of um, employees have taken it upon themselves. A um, couple of other examples, uh, we ran a successful office funding project uh, where different offices around the campus could apply um, to a small pot of money to buy sort of glasses, mugs, cutlery, jugs. You know, it sounds really simple, um, but we actually have so many different types and sizes of offices around campus that facilities in each one completely vary. So bringing them all up to a similar standard um, was, was a good achievement for us. And we actually have two plastic-free venues as well on campus, um, or single-use plastic-free, I should say, uh, the first of which is a, a cafe in a new development of ours um, called Nexus. And another one is Stage at Leeds, which this is a performance space um, that includes a theatre, dance studio, rehearsal rooms, and a licensed bar as well. So they've successfully removed single-use plastic. Okay, that's, that's well. really impressive, especially, yeah, the, the single-use... Uh, plastic-free cafes and um, yeah, the, the nightclub stuff's very interesting. As a former student, I do know how much uh, students drink and how much it's drunk through plastic uh, cutlery as well. So that that's all impressive. Um, and Lucy, we're almost out of time here, but I think um, since we're in January, and January is always a time where it's that, that phase where people still look ahead to the rest of the year and kind of focus on their key goals. It'd be great to get um, insight into, you know, what, what your focus is for the rest of the year and indeed up to that 2023 target. So where, where, what's the kind of next key area of action for you around this target? So, yeah, our absolute priority this year is catering and offices. As you mentioned at the beginning, um, we have a target to remove single-use plastic from these spaces by the end of 2020. So, that's the end of this year. Um, so yeah, we, we'll be working with those services to really identify um, the single-use plastic that's still in operation and to find alternatives for those. Um, and this includes sort of working with the cleaning departments and the procurement teams as well within those areas. Great stuff. A lot on the uh, a lot in the pipeline then for for twenty twenty and beyond, which is uh, great to hear. And I'm sure um, us at Edie will be uh, wanting to keep in touch with that progress uh, at the university, uh, Lucy. We do have to move on with this podcast episode. We've got a few more interviews lined up. So it's uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and thank you uh, for, for that insight into the University of Leeds' uh, progress towards becoming single-use plastic-free. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Okay, thank you very much. So thanks to Lucy and again, congratulations uh, to the University of Leeds for removing more than one million pieces of plastic to date. And I'm sure that number will rise uh, as we make inroads into 2020. So we're going to approach a short break right now uh, but as mentioned we'll be back for an exclusive interview with our Plastics Week supporting partner Nestle to get under the skin of the business giant's plastics strategy so uh, we'll be back in a second for that interview. So yes, hello and welcome back to episode 78 of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. We're approaching the hour mark already, so this this episode is a, a bit of a behemoth. Um, so I suppose this is the second part, it's kind of episode 78.2. But trust me, this next interview has been well worth the wait. Break Free from Plastic is a three-year-old organisation that publishes annual rankings of the world's top plastic polluters, uh, and it recently named Coca-Cola, PepsiCo and Nestle as the three largest. And that's, you know, that's not to say those firms aren't working drastically to change this, it's just um, that their 
impact is big, but so is their scope to really drive change, um, not just across their own organization, but across entire value chains. And I think Nestle is a prime example of a business that is doing just that. Uh, it's set up an ambition to make all of its packaging either recyclable or reusable by 2025. Uh, that target was set publicly in 2018. Just this week, uh, it committed £1.59 billion to source food-grade recycled plastics uh, that can be used in its packaging, uh, and that was alongside a pledge to cut the amount of virgin plastics it sources by a third. And as supporting partners for Our Plastics Week and indeed this episode, uh, Nestle kindly agreed to an interview between myself and the company's UK and Ireland Head of Sustainability, Anna Turrell, uh, who also appeared on our online event on Thursdays for those who recognise the voice. So this 25-minute interview explores Nestle's progress against its targets and it kind of looks across the spectrum of the plastics issue. <clears throat> From the broader need for businesses to educate consumers on the impact of plastic alternatives to the need for businesses to push policy um, and innovation to kind of fix the whole waste management system. So let's hear that interview with Anna Turrell in full now. So now it's time for the the final segment of this uh, Plastics Week podcast, and uh, it's it's the main event, so to speak, for for lack of a better term. Um, as I'm sure some of the listeners are aware, Nestle uh, have been the supporting partners of our Plastics Week. Um, they've got involved in the uh, the single use plastics business roadmap report, which is on the website now. They um, they're taking part in the online events, which happened on um, Thursday. Um, and and they've they've kind of provided us with some really unique case studies and, and viewpoints around where we are in terms of the business community acting on single use plastics. Um, and as a kind of final piece of of Nestle's involvement in Plastic Week, they they've invited me to their Gatwick offices, which is nice. I'm usually having to trek up to London um, for an interview, so it's nice just to be able to uh, uh, take twenty minutes to get to an interview this, this time. So I'm in the Gatwick offices to speak to um, Anna Turrell, the head of sustainability for Nestle UK and Ireland. So Anna, thank you so much uh, for inviting me to a quite impressive looking studio much <laughs> compared to the ED ones, that's for sure. Just outside of Gatwick Airport, you get a great view of the runway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you for, for inviting me uh, along to your offices today. Um, and obviously, thank you all as well for your involvement uh, in the week. This is just a good chance for us to kind of take stock and, and on, on Nestle's involvement in terms of the... I don't use the war on waste, but that's kind of what it's been used by the media. The, the war on single-use plastics and, and the, the need for businesses to phase out single-use plastics and, and kind of transition to a, to a circular economy. So um, I suppose a good place to start would be for, for the few audience systems that are perhaps unaware, you know, what, what, is, what is Nestle's targets around, around single-use plastics um, and, and, you know, what's, what's the year been like in terms of 2019 in terms of trying to meet those so I think 2019 has been an incredibly busy year for everyone. Um, and the plastics and packaging issue has really come into its own, um, both within industry as industry engages, but also within the public domain and media and, and, and discourse. Um, you, you really can't uh, avoid the subject. Um, and, and that means a lot of work, a lot of focus, a lot of resource uh, going on uh, behind the scenes in order to make the progress, make the transformation that we need to see um, as a collective society, but also specifically as a, as a business in the food and beverage space. Um, 
just as a, a kind of a reminder, Nestle uh, launched its global packaging commitments in April 2018, setting out um, the uh, ambition and the commitment to have 100% of our packaging, uh, including plastics, recyclable and reusable by 2025, underneath which sits a number of kind of sub-commitments, if you like, in order to help get us there. Um, and all framed within the context of a, a roadmap that focuses on three core areas. And I, I think it's really important just to kind of flag these because it's a great way of, of starting to think quite structurally around how do we change the system. So for us, it's about um, developing packaging of the future. So that's new material solutions, innovations, reducing the amount of um, uh, unnecessary uh, plastic that we use, uh, looking at alternative ways of actually getting our products to consumers. Um, the second area is about how do we shape a waste-free future, so that's the infrastructure piece that you've kind of referenced already. How do we play an active role in shaping the, inf the right infrastructure that works best for the communities in which we are, we're, we're operating? And then the third piece is around how do we help um, drive new behaviour and understanding particularly through our brands. So how do we make sure that the information we're giving to consumers is consistent, it's clear, it's understandable, but it also correlates with actually what the external waste management landscape looks like. And we know here in the UK, it's super confusing. We've got 400 local plus local authorities mm -hmm. all doing different things with different types of, of packaging. So we need to make that journey easier for consumers. So that um, was the starting point for us. 2019, lots of stuff going on. Uh, we inaugurated the Nestle Institute for Packaging Sciences in Lausanne uh, in September of last year. That's really our massive R&D hub. It's our kind of innovation incubator, really testing new material solutions, ideas, um, seeing what works and what doesn't work. And the approach that we've taken is very kind of pragmatic. We're open to all ideas. Um, because we know that it's not a one-size-fits-all um, job uh, that's, that's going to kind of create that transformational change we need to see. But also, we're very, very mindful about unintended consequences, which is why we haven't, in our global commitments, actually explicitly called out compostable or, or biodegradable, for example. Because we reckon there's a role for those materials, potentially, but it, it needs a lot more work mm. and a lot more um, kind of uh, research to understand, actually, what that can mean particularly at the point of use and end of life and disposal when the consumer comes into that. So that was another big bit. Um, one of the other uh, kind of big um, uh, things on our agenda last year was starting to move to alternative materials. And we had the launch of our Yes um, snacking bar moving uh, globally to uh, paper. Uh, so 100% kind of paper uh, packaging, which means it's uh, recyclable in the waste paper stream, which is great. We're now looking at how can we scale that across the uh, other brands, other, other categories. Uh, and that comes with a huge amount of complexity and challenge, right? Because what we're talking about is not just how we change the, the packaging of a product. It's actually all the, um, uh, the manufacturing processes and the technology um, that we use behind it in order to manufacture uh, those products safely and maintain that quality as well. So there's a huge amount of work that goes on behind the scenes in order to, to get what maybe feels like uh, innovation out there into the public domain, but is it is it quick enough? And that's the struggle I think that big companies like Nestle ha are, are, are grappling with. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I remember when, when I suppose plastics really became the 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 big issue is you know it was it was happening before the, that blue planet episode yeah. that everyone references we were, we were seeing a lot of stuff on ed come in but that kind of 
that kind of changed the the pace, so to speak. And it became this. There was a real visceral reaction from from consumers and from just the public in general around it. And we saw a lot of businesses straight away be like, "Yes, this is something we definitely need to act on." And um, and I think what I've seen personally is is the conversation mature a little bit, a lot more of that discussion around those unintended consequences, a, a realization that you know we need to progress, but there's no there's no silver bullets, no no perfect solutions out there. Do, do you think we're in a we're in a a, a state of, of play right now where businesses can have those, I suppose, more mature conversations with whether it's stakeholders or it's consumers and be like, look, this, we, we realise, you you know, some people think plastics are bad. We can't make that change overnight because of X, Y, Z, because of infrastructure, because of a lack of um, understanding around alternative materials yet, or do you, is it still very much consumers will keep pushing? I I think it's it's way more complicated so I think we have to break it down to think about who are the stakeholders who are the audiences that we want to engage with and and have a constructive dialogue but also recognizing that we've got kind of common endpoints what do we need to achieve Um, because big picture we've all got a role to play and I know that can sound a little bit trite coming from a big um, uh, packaging producer user um but it's true right because we as a company as as any other company using packaging putting it out into the marketplace we can do as much cool innovative stuff as we like to make our packaging recyclable reusable um not end up as as waste or as litter um but if consumers actually don't do something with it then the system falls down you cannot ever really create a closed loop unless we all understand our role and we know how to play it so i think it depends on where you sit in that value chain Mm. in that in that cycle and system as to what that role needs to look like and then therefore what do we need to do so if you I think we're still at a a stage where there's a huge amount of confusion as well as a huge amount of noise around this issue. I am so thrilled to see the amount of public um, conversation and momentum behind this issue, which is highly emotive. Um, And that's brilliant because we need to keep the pressure on, all of us, including industry. But we need to have more informed conversations and we need to be really pragmatic about that. How do we create that balance um, in order to to create that that system shift? And the thing I think about um, quite a lot in in that respect is, from a a consumer perspective, um, it's really difficult to have those conversations. Plastic does have a role to play and it's going to continue to have a role to play. Getting rid of it completely, probably isn't the solution right now. Now, in the future, that might look different. But if we look at what the alternatives currently look like that would have to slot into that space that plastic had, whether that's glass or it's aluminium or, or something else, um, they've got they've got a big environmental footprints too. Mm. So then it comes down to kind of, you find yourself thinking about, you know, what does that hierarchy of, of priority look like? Is it about environmental impact? Is it about climate change, carbon emissions? Mm. Or is it about plastic waste in the environment? And I think the, the kind of, the, the, that level of nuance in the conversation and the discourse is incredibly difficult to just put on a sticker on a pack, right? Um, so, so I think conversations with the consumers, we need to do a lot more and we need to work a lot harder at figuring out how can we actually land some of those messages, but, but also have a dialogue. You know, it's not about pushing our positions as industry or, or anyone. It's about how do we have a dialogue constructively to 
help us collectively figure out what that, that, that right future landscape looks like. I think it's a different conversation when you're talking about um, other industry players, whether that's your peer set, your competitive set, whether it's waste management companies who are, you know, you've got to work hand in hand with, or whether it's with government. And I think that's a, a separate piece in itself. I think going forward into 2020, my expectation and my hope of industry, and very much including Nestle, because I will be pushing this, is that we have a much more uh, visible and vocal uh, kind of role in helping to inform and engage with all of those policymakers, with those stakeholders that are going to be absolutely critically important to playing a role in shaping what that future system looks like. And we, and we saw it in 2019 with the um, government consultations. We, we're going to have another round of consultations this year. Um, we have to really kind of make sure that some of those really pragmatic points land, such as the importance of having a harmonised system, mm. not creating multiple systems that don't interconnect, because you're, you're never going to get that scale and that true transformation that you need. So it really does depend on who you're talking to about what. But for me, it's very much about dialogue and it's about what you can get kind of back through that engagement to help shape and inform your collective thinking and your working going forward. And, and on, on that topic of dialogue uh, that, that helped you kind of inform and, and shape your thinking and how that needs to resonate beyond the business sphere, how, how, did, how did that help you shape um, and help Nestle shape its its strategy. You know, you mentioned the twenty twenty five targets. Was you know was that built around this like this consumer concern? I, I mean, I'm guessing it was in the works a fair bit um, before that internally. But you know, um, in terms of how you you eventually got to the point where you're like, okay, twenty twenty five, hundred percent, it's like reusable, compostable. This is this is the right thing to do. You know, what kind of conversations did you mm. have to have? I think it was it was. You're right. There was kind of a moment. I think for everyone, for all of us. Um, the Blue Planet effect, obviously, was a, a great catalyst, particularly amongst the public. Um, but, but equally, as you say, we've been working on this for a long time, um, for years and years, in fact. And our approach historically is about has been framed around life cycle assessment. So we um, use LCAs for all of our new product development, for all of our packaging, you know, all of all of that, um, and we have done for many years. Interestingly, where that took us was to a place where we were, we ended up lightweighting a lot of our packaging in order to kind of help manage that um, environmental impact, not necessarily f- uh, fully aware of, of the, the kind of impact um, that that has then on the recyclability of packaging. So that kind of... I think we've learned from those unintended consequences. We still use LCA very much. It's a fundamental mm. part of our process. But actually where we got to um, in the conversations we were having in 2017, 2016, up into launching our public commitment in 2018, was very much around, okay, where does the industry need to go? How can we make sure that the commitments, the work that we are going to set ourselves aligns with the expectations of stakeholders, of the public, but also marries up with the rest of industry because what you don't want is different companies different sectors moving at different paces it makes it very difficult to manage so um we are we work closely with the ellen MacArthur foundation we're a core partner of the new plastics economy those conversations were really helpful because they also provided us with that insight across a broader stakeholder group of industry of government um, but similarly, here in the UK, we're a founding signatory of the UK Plastics Pact, work very closely with RAP. So again, those conversations were really helpful. Um, and the conversations we were having with government, um, whether that's here in the UK or Brussels, and I think it's really important to call out the um, 
uh, single-use plastics directive coming out of, of the European Commission, which has been absolutely instrumental, I think, in actually setting that pace um, and that direction that other governments, that industry and others are now kind of looking at in order to, okay, how do we make sure that we're, we're in the right space um, for, for, for what will be quite systemic, regional-wide um, changes to, to the industry. So a lot, of, a lot of different pieces in play, but they all came together kind of around the same time, which, which is, is great. Definitely. And if you, you touched on, um, since that strategy was launched, some of the successes that you've <clears throat> been able to generate with the Yes bars, for example. Are there, are there any other um, standout, um, I suppose, changes, whether that's simply just reducing, you know, I mean, I think it was uh, the, the RAP progress report, they kind of out- outlined those nine problematic plastics mm. that are pretty... You know, the, they're the kind of the quick wins. Yeah. Um, so whether it's that or whether it is just um, replacing with alternative packaging, whether it's moving to a bit more of a service-based model, are there any other kind of successes that Nestle have been able mm. to generate so far? So I think the um, the Plastics Pact um, kind of uh, list is really helpful. We also have a negative list internally, as do a num- number of other companies, which includes all of those problematic and unnecessary um packaging uh plastics packaging materials so we're um and we have timelines against the um removal of all of them um uh across the portfolio which we're working very heavily on now um part of the solution is about moving to alternative materials but it's also about innovations in the business model as well so in reuse models for example um so loop um is one of of those reuse models which we've tested and piloted in the us and um, with our hagen dars ice cream business um, it's now rolling out in France, um, and then Loop is also uh, imminently kind of going to be uh, in the UK and in London, which is great. So we're staying very close to that. Um, we're also testing other reuse models um, in some of our sites in Switzerland, looking at bulk distribution, which we're also really keen to explore. Um, uh, and then brand specific beyond yes, Smarties have also got a commitment to be uh, plastic free by the end of this year. So we're moving to fully paper-based as well. Um, and we'll have some, some new uh, SKUs coming out very shortly on that. Um, and then another big one in 2019 was uh, Buxton, our, our Waters um, uh, brand, uh, which announced that it would be 100%, uh, it would use 100% recycled PET um, by uh, the end of 2021. It's already got a number of um, formats in the marketplace that are 100% our pet, um, but to actually push that right across the brand, which is great. Um, so, so those are some examples. What I would say is I think it's really important to consider, and we're very mindful of this, when we make those announcements that they're not just anecdotal little proof points, but mm. they actually have to ladder up into something quite meaningful. So Buxton, for example, we were really conscious of saying, right, this is the commitment we're making. And when the, within the next kind of couple of years, our entire range of Buxton is going to be made of, recyc- of 100% mm. recycled PET. Now, today, that is is a tough um, thing to do because we don't necessarily have the infrastructure in place and therefore the the supply of uh, recycler in order to make that a reality. But by setting those public commitments and those intentions and also demonstrating the investment we as a business are putting behind it, it also really helps to stimulate that development of the marketplace. So again, looking ahead to 2020, we're going to do a lot more work on that as well because we are very conscious, and I don't want to use the B word, but Brexit um, mm-hmm. you know, could potentially have quite an impact in terms of, of how 
the UK market and other markets interact in terms of the supply of materials or the export, whatever that, that looks like. And we as a company um, are very committed to developing effective domestic infrastructure. We want a waste management system in the UK that actually is fit for purpose and works um, for everyone. Yeah, no, I know. I know some companies have, have struggled in the past with kind of plant-based mm. ET because of that that different views of kind of domestic um, waste streams uh, in the past. So that's actually a really really good point that I, I think hasn't perhaps been brought up too much around this discussion. Um, and then subsequently, then you mentioned that Brexit could be a, a challenge. Are there any other kind of barriers that that are in place, whether that's kind of technological, um, behaviour based, or is it still kind of infrastructure that's, you know that there aren't the solutions there yet but the fact that you set that public target like you said it kind of spurs that market demand mm. i think there are a number of factors obviously infrastructure is kind of front of mind because it's very visible but also we all have to engage in it um and the, the lack of a, a harmonized consistent waste management system in the uk obviously completely impedes us from creating that those those circular economies and that, that closed loop um, so I think that's a, a really big one. And obviously that is dependent on the right investment, um, but also the right mechanisms in place to manage it. I think part of the challenge um, that we also see is that the existing system, and when we think about the extended producer responsibility, um, uh, EPR, it's, um, it, it's been a little opaque in, in places. So, you know, we are we are paying into a system and we're feeding into a system that we don't necessarily know what's happening with what and where. Um, and so I think um, infrastructure coupled with the need for a mechanism that creates greater transparency and has greater oversight over how that system works is really, really important. Um, so that's a, another area. And then one I, I would call out specific to the food and beverage industry is around regulation particularly linked to food contact materials it often doesn't get talked about a lot um, publicly and um, particularly within civil society if you look at some of the campaigns that have been um, initiated and reports that have been made about the role of big business and and our foot our packaging footprints uh, which is very valid um, and you know those are important reports uh, it, it often fails to recognise that actually there's a huge regulatory divide between um, FMCG companies, for example, who are in personal care products and have a different regulation, a set of regulations, versus food and beverage companies that are hugely heavily regulated about what materials we can use in, in food contact. Um, so that regulation, I think, is also something that needs to be looked at absolutely together alongside, well, what does that future system state need to look like? Um, and and then links into the point I was just making about um, the the availability of, of food grade quality recycle it right um, at the moment we don't have a system where there is any um, segregation or there's a protection for uh, recycle it that can be food grade and scaled to match the demands of the, the emerging demands of the industry. So that's something else that I think is particularly specifically challenging for, for our industry. And then, yeah, as you said, behaviors, it's the softer side of things. How, how can we all engage each other with consistent messaging and consistent information that enables us to all consistently do the right thing and do what we need to? Um, and I don't have the answer for that right now, but that's something that is very top of, of my mind and I know for our brands it's something that is a really um, a weighty consideration. Yeah, I think, I think that, that applies to the broader sustainability spectrum as well. Mm. I mean, climate change kind of hit the public 
awareness quite hard uh, last year through the climate strikes and we we've seen a lot of um, new business commitments around carbon reductions and I think I think around what I've seen around plastics and in particular offsetting there's a there's a risk that greenwash can can rise back up um, the agenda I think it's um, you know not to say that offsetting and, and in fact you know as you mentioned by basic compostables don't have their part to play mm. but I think yeah there's need to be a, a kind of clearer message around uh, both of those and we spent a lot of time looking ahead at you know the, the challenges of what, what needs to happen we're, we're in January of, of a new year 2020 kind of big decade for sustainability SDGs 10 years away um, Paris agreement kind of net zero emissions uh, that's 20, 30 years away now mm. um, so a bit a big year and you know January is always a time for kind of looking ahead new targets um, and, and just you know outlining your your action areas for the year so it'd be great to hear about um, you know what you want to see happen in 2020 whether that's uh, with, through, through Nestle or whether the business community as a whole around plastics mm. that's a big question um, you're right there's a, there's a lot of noise um, in 2020 uh, and a lot of focus on the broader sustainability agenda I think where we haven't really gotten into a conversation as industry or as a, a collective is around the interplay between plastics and packaging and climate um, and that's something that I think is worthy of at least a, a conversation to explore and understand because I think there is a bigger umbrella <clears throat> and that is around climate um, uh, and, and I think also it could be quite a helpful conversation to have coming back to those unintended consequences to think about, you know, what are our priorities and, and how do we create that balance within the system? Um, I think going forward, pace is going to be absolutely fundamental. Um, you know, we can all move quicker and, and harder and all of that stuff. Um, but pace is going to be absolutely fundamental. We've only got five years to meet our uh, 2025 commitments uh, and a lot of work to do and pace requires effective collaboration so I think um, this is my personal view that up until now on the plastics topic um, we've all kind of come at it quite individually you know what does it mean for us uh, what do we need to do in response um, and that's okay but you know you get to a point where the maturity of the conversation is such that actually we need to kind of put the, uh, the what's in it for me aside and say mm. okay how can we genuinely, truly collaborate um, at, in order to, to kind of achieve um, the, the transformation at scale that we need? Um, in terms of Nestle specifically, we're going to be uh, continuing to uh, uh, release um, uh, new um, packaging innovations uh, in line with our commitments and, and everything I've outlined earlier. Um, we have also just um, announced, uh, kind of hot off the press yesterday, that we will be investing two billion Swiss francs um, to lead the shift from virgin plastic use to uh, food grade recycled plastics. Um, and the purpose of that announcement is really to also stimulate a wider uh, a kind of industry and system um, engagement and, and pick up. And as I said before, this food grade quality recycling is, is a real issue that we need to tackle um, if we're going to keep being able to deliver the products um, to consumers that they, they love and enjoy. Um, as part of that, we've also just committed to reduce the amount of virgin plastics that we use by one third by 2025. Um, uh, which is, is really significant. Obviously, we are a multi-category uh, business, uh, which means we are in a number of different um, spaces using packaging that's quite tricky 
to to use recycled content for. So there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, and as part of that ambition, um, we're also launching a sustainability fund, so a 250 million Swiss franc sustainability fund, where we want to invest in initiatives, um, organisations, entities that are really focused on um, how we can tackle uh, the the issue around waste within the environment. Um, so whether that's collection, it's reprocessing, it's sorting, whatever that may look like in you know the countries um, around the world where we operate, recognizing that solutions look very different in very you know in different countries um, and different regions. So a lot of work going on, um, a great opportunity ahead. Um, and hopefully these announcements will, will serve to also galvanise broader industry um, momentum because we really want others to join us um, on this journey as well. Well, what a great start to the year that sounds like it's, uh, it's going to be. And um, yeah, definitely agree with the, the coupling of the, the plastics and, and climate uh, debate. I think we will start seeing more of that. In fact, we interviewed Sean Sutherland from a Plastics Planet uh, the other day. Um, there's a piece up on our website, and and she, you know, she says that exact same thing. That's where that's where this conversation needs to go. So there's a bit of uh, unified thinking amongst uh, the sustainability experts, which are great. Um, and I realised, um, <laughs> you know, with, with that, with what you just mentioned, and and the fact that we are kind of uh, still in Edis Plastics Week, I probably kept you for far longer than um, than than you needed, and I'm I'm sure you're you're very busy. So. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your day to talk to me and, and you know, appear on the podcast. Um, it's been a pleasure to speak to you and I'm sure we'll be uh, keeping in touch throughout the year as, uh, as Nessie continues its, uh, its transition away from single-use plastics. Perfect. Thanks so much, Matt. Great. Cheers. Thank you. So there you go. Four exclusive interviews showing how a range of different uh, companies are tackling the plastics problem head-on in a variety of different measures. And throughout the year, ED will continue to bring you insight and information on how businesses are and can tackle uh, plastics pollution head on. And as mentioned, our new report, which features that viewpoint from Anna, is a great place to start. So check out the ED download section of our website to find that. And of course, uh, a big thank you goes to Nestle for their involvement in our Plastics Week, uh, but also Sky, Tideway, the University of Leeds for speaking to us on this episode, and for the, uh, what feels like hundreds, but is in fact just tens of businesses uh, that we've interviewed and spoke to uh, over the course of the week. So we'll be back in a few weeks' time uh, with an episode that is focusing on the electric vehicle revolution and the particular implications and impacts that will have on businesses and the opportunities that organisations can reap by tapping in to that revolution. Until then, though, if you haven't already, please subscribe to these podcasts via Spotify and or iTunes and do check out the ED website for the latest announcements in the world of corporate sustainability, uh, including Microsoft's game-changing carbon-negative announcement, which I'm sure many of you will have seen uh, this morning, this morning being Friday the 17th of January, of course. But until next time, it's goodbye.